this section of the chapter on uh, Vedana Nupasana, the contemplation of feelings, is called Unpleasant Feeling. In the historical context of ancient India, the wise analysis of feeling proposed by the Buddha constituted a middle path between the worldly pursuit of sensual pleasures and ascetic practices of penance and self-mortification. So deliberately causing yourself pain with the idea that there was some kind of spiritual virtue in that. A prominent rationale behind the self-mortifications prevalent among ascetics at that time was an absolutist conception of karma. Self-inflicted pain, it was believed, brings an immediate experience of the accumulated negative karmic retribution from the past and thereby accelerates its eradication. So the idea is that by experiencing pain, you're burning up your bad karma. So the, before the Buddha's enlightenment and during his um, six years of uh, austere practices um, uh, during uh, uh, that time after he left the palace and, and took up the wandering uh, yogi's life, then for six years he engaged in that, that kind of um, uh, self-mortification or, or these sort of ascetic uh, practices and, and with that same kind of attitude that the more pain you experience the more you're burning up your bad karma and it's intrinsically seen as being spiritually liberating and uh, you still find that very commonly the case uh, in India today um, the the word tapas or a, a tapasin is a yogi or an ascetic tapas literally means heat and it's considered that the more that you experience and learn to endure uh, pain, uh, then the more tapas, the more spiritual heat you are uh, you're generating. And um, so literally that's the word for a, a yogi or a, or a meditator is a tapasin, you know, an ascetic. And so like a, you're a heater, yeah. <laughs> is what you're, you're known as, you're a heater. And um, so one of the, the key insights of the Buddha was uh, it's not about heat, it's about coolness. So the him using the word Nibbana to represent the spiritual fulfillment was, was uh, radical, not just in terms of his own insight, but also it was radical in terms of a completely different spiritual image. So that the, uh, the aim of spiritual transformation was uh, coolness rather than more heat. So in the Indian... Uh, mythology so shiva lord shiva is known as the great tapasin the great ascetic and so he's a sort of um uh the sort of presiding deity over the 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 world of many of the the yogis and ascetics and so uh, there's various suttas where the buddha describes the kind of practices that he did and also that others would do and um uh, up until the time of his insight into the middle way, he said he was he was so skinny he could touch the skin of his stomach and he could feel his backbone. So pretty skinny, <laughs> and uh, and such like. And he also had the insight: you can experience this much pain, but you can't experience more. As he said, I know the limit to which feeling goes. Like this is the max. It's like the the needle is over in the red. It's kind of nudging up against the the pin at the uh, at the the sort of it's gone up to 11 uh, and uh, you can't get any more but realizing that, okay the pain level is at 11 
it's way over in the red, but still uh, there isn't any liberation. And so he had this insight, there must be another way. The Buddha disagreed with such mechanistic theories of karma. In fact, any attempt to work through the retribution of the entire sum of one's past karmic unwholesome deeds is bound to fail, because the series of past lives of any individual is without a discernible beginning. So that's one of the, the four achintea, or the four imponderables, is the ultimate beginning of things. So the four are the, the range of the mind of a Buddha, the, uh, um, uh, the, all the, the workings of karma is the second one, the, um, all of the uh, qualities of mental uh, absorption, all the different levels of jhana and you know, the mind states that go with that, and then the fourth is the ultimate origin of things. So these are achintea, they're in, the inconceivables or imponderables, where like, the, the thinking mind cannot encompass the, the reality. So the amount of karmic retribution to be exhausted is unfathomable. Besides, painful feelings can arise from a variety of other causes, like the weather, like you know, um, just the, the very fact of having been born and the, um, uh, the laws of physics and chemistry, uh, what are called the, uh, uh, the niyamas, like the, the laws of, of uh, physics and chemistry, uh, utu niyama, the laws of biology, bija niyama. These are also... Uh, uh, aspects of physical pain and then mental pain of uh, the um, uh, chitaniyama, the laws governing the, the mind, the, 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 uh, the basic functioning of the mental realm, and dhamma itself. So it's not just karma, but all these other laws that we are subject to and make up the causes of, our, of what we experience, what we do. Although karmic retribution cannot be avoided and will quite probably manifest in one form or another during one's practice of the path, awakening is not simply the outcome of mechanically eradicating the accumulated effects of past deeds. This is outlining the, the Buddha's radically different approach. So it's not a matter of, of um, experiencing the results of all your past deeds and sort of uh, working those through. What awakening requires is the eradication of ignorance, avijja through the development of wisdom. With the complete penetration of ignorance through insight, arahants go beyond the range of most of their accumulated karmic deeds, apart from those still due to ripen in this present lifetime. So what that means is that if the idea was that you had to pay off uh, you know, all of the, the um, karmically harmful things that have been done in previous lives, there's, there's far more in the bank. To, the debt is so gigantic it's impossible to pay it off. Also, the accumulated wholesome deeds, you know, it's not all negative. <laughs> uh, it's, it'd be impossible to experience the results of, of all of those deeds just uh, the, the, because of the infinity of time and, ac and action. But what he's pointing to is that the Buddha realized that you don't have to, um, to pay, so quote-unquote, pay off all of those debts, but rather, as he said, through insight, arahants go beyond the range of most of their accumulated karmic deeds. So through the insight into uh, anatta, into not-self, then the, that quality of, of detachment, uh, non-entanglement, is the, the key piece. So even though there are resonances uh, of uh, past actions, positive and negative and neutral, that are going to be experienced, then that um, uh, 
say uh, during the, the that lifetime, it, it's not a matter of whether you experience them or not. The, the fact is that there's no uh, I and me and mine being uh, say and being built around that. And as um, uh, the note says, the simple logic behind this is that the karmic result, results bound to ripen in future lives will no longer have an opportunity to produce results. In the case of the Arahant Angulimala, for example, retribution for his former crimes could only take place within the limited scope of that same lifetime. So that, that's a, a very sort of classic example where um, uh, Angulimala had been a bandit and a, a mass murderer before he became a monk. And so um, uh, he had killed many, many people, many hundreds of people. So he was not a popular person. <laughs> so even though the, book, the, the Buddha uh, accepted him as a, as a bhikkhu, and um, so technically he was outside the law, and the king decided not to punish, uh, punish him and, uh, uh, for his, his crimes, uh, still the people around in the area who'd lost their family members that Angulimala had killed, they were not all pleased. And so... Uh, there was a certain amount of just aggravation from local people seeing this this monk, and they didn't really care that he was a monk or not. They, he was the one who killed their their brother, their husband, their wife, their children, their, their child, and so um, he would get stuff you know thrown at him, you know, rocks and and um, uh, be uh, attacked by people in various ways. But also, it seems that various accidents would happen as well. He would walk along, and branches would drop off trees and clobber him on the head, and and um, tiles would slide off roofs as he was, he was walking past, and such like, in the commentarial descriptions. And so in the Angulimala Sutta, it describes how he's, uh, as he's out on his arms round, then you know, a, um, uh, a, uh, he's hit on the head by a broken piece of pottery or a piece of stick or a, a, a brick, and he comes back to the monastery with his head bleeding and his arms bowl broken, and his robes all ripped up, and the, the Buddha says to him, um, bear it, uh, uh, bear it, you know, so be, be patient with this because you are experiencing now the results of actions that uh, you, would, uh, um, you would have experienced over many, many lifetimes, uh, many, many thousands of lifetimes, many hundreds of thousands of lifetimes down in, in the lower realms. So these are the, the resonances of your, your very uh, unskillful life are, are still being felt. But you know, this is he was an arahant, so it was it was his last lifetime. But there was still a certain amount of of that um, uh, retribution, as you can you can call it, that was still going to hatch. So uh, that that's a, a, an important principle, and it, uh, and even though we might think, well, it's very superstitious that the idea of you know, sort of burning off bad karma, you still find that very commonly, not just within the Indian yogis, but. Um, also, I was very struck. I was in New York City a few, uh, a few years ago, and there was a large billboard uh, advertisement for the U.S. Marines, and it was a um, a, uh, a picture of a a, um, a young soldier on an assault course climbing over this wall, like a, a wooden wall. You have to scramble up one side and heave yourself over the top, and so this uh, this sort of shaven-headed soldier was. Kind of straining hard to climb over this the top of this this wall because they're like you know, twelve or fifteen feet high. You have to scramble up and get over with a pack on his back and agonized look on his face. And the caption was, "Pain is the experience of weakness leaving." <laughs> Join the U.S. Marines. And then, of course, at the side you have this marine in his dress uniform with his with his sword with the. Yeah, 
a kind of a sparkle of light crossing the, the blade of his sword looking, look, looking like a Christian crucifix. So I thought, that's wrong view. <laughs> pain is not the experience of weakness leaving. Pain is just pain. <laughs> it's a, it all depends on the, the attitude that you have towards it. So this was a very radical approach that the, the Buddha took. And also you find it today. I mean, there's, um, not that I wish to mis misrepresent um, Goenkaji, but there's a certain amount of that um, philosophy that filters into the Goenka method of yeah, uh, quote-unquote burning off the sankharas. There's nothing in the Buddhist scriptures that relates to the way that Goenkaji speaks um, about about that. And the, you know, sankhara just means thing. It's just, it's not like you've got this sort of sankharas wedged into your body that you're then by experiencing painful feeling you're you're burning off or you're purifying your sankharas. It's not. Sankara is just just means a thing. It, it's like a, your whole body is a sankara. Your thoughts are a sankara. It doesn't mean just sort of some kind of karmic residue that you're burning off by experiencing pain. So, yeah, I'm not quite sure why Goenkaji has developed his philosophy and his way of teaching uh, in that way, but um, uh, he does, as far as I'm aware. But I'd say it doesn't really match the Buddha's teaching, and that you can sit there for ten days diligently following the practice, feeling all kinds of painful feeling, and still be as ignorant as you were when you came in, if not more ignorant. So um, there's nothing intrinsically liberating about experiencing pain. Uh, and that's, and that's the, sort of the key insight that the, the Buddha had. It's, it's uh, ignorance, avicca, not understanding, not seeing clearly. That's the, the key element. And so um, uh, if there is understanding, then the, the uh, painful feelings or pleasant feelings or whatever feelings there are, if they are, if they are understood and known as they truly are, then that is what liberates the heart, and that's kind of irrespective of the the karmic background. Whether you've lived very wholesomely and you have a very comfortable, easy um, experience, or very uh, you've lived very unskillfully, like Angulimala, and you or, and you have a very sort of painful or difficult experience, um, that it's it's all hinges upon the attitude, not the amount of pain that is or is not being experienced or being uh, tolerated. Was that clear enough? I mean, it's a ma it's a major point. It's a significant point. So it's it's good to be able to get that clear. I'm happy to disagree with the U.S. Marines advertising. <laughs> so it certainly catches the attention, but um, <laughs> not for the right reasons. Okay. The Buddha himself, prior to his own awakening, had also taken for granted that painful experiences have purifying effects. So as I mentioned, there's a few suttas where he describes his own, uh, his own thinking in that respect. After abandoning ascetic practices and gaining realization, he knew better. The Chula Dukkha Sutta, the lesser discourse, shorter discourse on the mass of suffering, and it reports the Buddha's attempt to convince some of his ascetic contemporaries of the fruitlessness of self-inflicted suffering. The discussion ended with the Buddha making the ironic point that, in contrast to the painful results of self-mortification, he, the Buddha, was able to experience degrees of pleasure vastly superior even to those available to the king of the country. So, uh, <clears throat> and he, as he said, um, you know, what, what do you think? Uh, um, is uh, King Bimbisara... Um, uh, 
king of Magadha, is he able to experience unremitting pleasure for seven days and seven nights without a, a moment's uh, interruption? And then the other yogis say, well, no, he's not. He said, well, I can. You know, I can absorb my mind into uh, states of, of bliss and experience uninterrupted pleasure for seven days and seven nights. So yeah, it's even more enjoyment than, the, than a, a, royal, uh, a member of the royal household can experience. So clearly for the Buddha, realization did not depend on merely enduring painful feelings. In fact, considered from the psychological viewpoint, intentional subjection to self-inflicted pain can be an expression of deflected aggression, your own sort of self, uh, self-hatred or your own uh, negativity. It sort of can be taken out in that sort of, you know, I'm going to conquer my kilesis, I'm going to burn it all out, that sort of... Uh, uh, Killing the defilements and uh, attacking your um, your practice with like a, a kind of um, uh, like an armed aggression, an armed aggression uh, against uh, your um, uh, spiritual obstacles. As it says, it's a deflect can be a deflected self-inflicted pain can be an expression of deflected aggression. The experience of unpleasant feelings can activate the latent tendency to irritation and lead to attempts to repress or avoid such unpleasant feelings. Moreover, aversion to pain can, according to the Buddha's penetrating analysis, fuel the tendency to seek sensual gratification, since from the unawakened point of view, the enjoyment of sensual pleasures appears to be the only escape from pain. So, um, Fear of pain, or the, the, and you know, just physical pain, but the pain of being bored or being irritated, being impatient or, or just um, unsatisfied. The the mind starts to hunt for something to be interested in, like uh, what 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 can I do? There must be something to eat or look at, or someone to talk to, or something to do around here. You know? And uh, monastic life is designed to create a certain degree of that kind of urgency. Um, not to, to increase frustration, but this is what's in the trade is called the, the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. So when life is very plain and simple, uh, and uh, monastic life, the renunciate lifestyle, and keeping the Vinaya discipline is deliberately plain. It's, it's supposed to be. Um, but it's, uh, uh, if that, if that um, plainness or that, uh, that austerity is unskillfully handled, then it just feeds an urge to, for gratification, the mind looking for some kind of outlet. Um, as he says, sensual pleasures appears to be the only escape from pain. So the, the Dutanga practices, or the, the, the kind of allowable uh, austere practices that uh, the Buddha encouraged and is very much part of our forest tradition way of life, it's, it, it sort of, in a way it ramps up a certain degree of that energetic uh, need to uh, to work with painful feeling, but it's all working with that painful or irritated, um, that tense feeling in, uh, in a in a skillful way. So Ajahn Chah used to uh, liken that to the the grindstone that you use to sharpen the edge of a blade. So that you you're del- if you don't have a, a good grindstone or a good uh, whetstone, you can't keep the edge of your blade sharp. Your blade will go dull. Your your wisdom blade gets gets dull and won't cut uh, so you use the friction uh, of of keeping the rules following the routine um, sense restraint 
it does create friction, but it's like the friction which is applied in the skillful way. Like if you work the blade uh, accurately and uh, and skillfully with the grindstone, then you get a really good edge on your on your blade. So this is the in a way the 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 methodology of the forest tradition and Dutanga practices are about learning to use the grindstone, learning to to uh, get the angle of the blade and the and the stone uh, just right so then your um your wisdom is keen yes go ahead um in terms of pain and patient endurance uh, for instance if you're meditating and you're having pain what would be a wholesome approach to it because if you're staying with the pain staying with with painful experience then in certain way you're uh, developing your patience or your mm -hmm. endurance, but there is of course a limit to it. Indeed, yes. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, the, for me it's a question, uh, should you go to, to the extreme, or should you kind of, when you cannot take it anymore, but then it's not really practicing the patience, you're not really being with it. Well, uh, the the standard that uh, I recommend and that uh, Ajahn Chah used to to, to uh, also speak about was to say it's always uh, it's always good to to stay with it at least for a few minutes after you feel like I really want to move, just to be making some effort to work with that painful feeling. Now, the standard that I like to encourage is to uh, when you, you have say a pain in your leg or your back and then uh, <clears throat> to to bring it say to, if you've been watching your breath or listening to the inner sound or whatever you deliberately take your attention off that other object like the breath and you put it where the pain is like in your leg your knee or your back or whatever and deliberately uh, bring attention to that and and look to see if you can you can of separate out the, the the physical sensation of pain, and then the 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 kind of agitation and and irritation, fear around it. So in a sense, relaxing the body and relaxing the attitude towards that. So uh, uh, encouraging a quality of patience or re relaxation, relaxing the muscles, relaxing the attitude. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's like working with that, what I was talking about, the second arrow aspect of it. Now, the body has its limits. You can't just say, I will sit in the full lotus for an hour and not move regardless, because that will probably get you a trip to the osteopath, yeah, uh, if your body's not geared for it. So, uh, when you are, uh, say, working with, with painful feeling in that way, and you've relaxed the body, you've relaxed the attitude, and then when you get a, a clear sense of, okay, that's enough. The body is now being stretched to its its limit. Then it's a, that's the appropriate time to change the posture. But it's it's also notice it's it's notable and important that you're changing the posture based on kindness for the body rather than aversion to pain. So if the motivation is aversion and fear of the painful feeling, then that will have a, a the the that. If fear and aversion are tied up with the cause, they'll still be there with the effect. So there might be relief from the pain, but then there'll be a fear. Oh no, it's going to come back again. Oh no, here it is. And the whole cycle of, um, of sort of tension and stress and, and negativity get, gets fed. 
if you use that painful feeling to develop a genuine patience, letting go of time, letting go of self, and you know, relaxing the attitude, relaxing the body, and then also that, that relaxation, in a way, helps there to be a more accurate attunement to the body and its limits. And so then, just like with eating food, you know, okay, that's enough. You know, if you're paying attention, you can notice, okay, that's, that's it, now I don't need any more. It's exactly the same with the body. It's like, okay, that's enough, time to move. And it's not aversion, it's just, okay, that's, that's, the, right, that's the appropriate amount of pain. If I push it any further, it's going to cause trouble. So let's not do that. So that's uh, the, the, um, sort of, uh, the way that uh, is most helpful to use uh, those pains. And it's not just in meditation, it's also other kinds of injuries or illnesses or you know, headaches and such like, any other kind of physical pain, we can work with them in the same way. And, and learning to, well, in, in English you use a term like teasing apart. Do you know that phrase? So like, like kind of separating out the, the, the pain itself and then the suffering that's, that's caused around it, uh, the, the second arrow. So separating out the first and the second arrow. There was another question there. Yeah. Alex, yeah. I was wondering, uh, as a enlightened person, does a person have no fear to pain? Does he have, if, if he sees someone going to hurt him, does he, doesn't, does he not move out of the way? Or <laughs> uh, uh, well, uh, um, you'd have to ask an enlightened person. But uh, they, they, uh, there was a, 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 a good story that uh, Jack Cornfield tells where uh, when he was a monk with Ajahn Chah back in the late 60s and there was a, a ceremony that was, that was taking place in this branch monastery down near the Cambodian border and it's quite hilly, that part of the country. Most of the northeast of Thailand is very flat but there's this sort of hilly um, borderlands between uh, Cambodia and Thailand. And so they were, they were being driven down to this branch monastery on the Cambodian border. And the, and the, uh, the feeling that Jack had was that uh, the driver had a death wish. And he was herring around these, in this sort of little pickup truck, and he was herring around these corners you know, on the wrong side of the road, completely blind, at great speed. And so Jack was sitting there. Next, and Ajahn, he and Ajahn Chah are in the front of this pickup with the driver. And he's thinking, we're going to die, we're going to die, we're going to die, we're going to die. And he's absolutely terrified. And he, and, and he looks over at Ajahn Chah, and Ajahn Chah's sitting there. But then he realized Ajahn Chah was actually holding on to the edge of his seat. <laughs> but, uh, and, uh, so that was a little bit reassuring. And then, but he, 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 the Ajahn didn't say anything. But then they, they finally got to the end, they survived the, the ride there. And Ajahn Chah just turned to him and said, scary ride, huh? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, the, the, that, uh, that demonstrates, yeah, he had uh, that experiences of, of excitement and, and the, the, the instinctual feelings of, um, of fear and danger, it's there. But it's also in exactly the same way. He knows how not to make a, any, any suffering out of it. You, they can potentially suffer. Yeah, if your rock is flying towards your head, an arahant would get out of the way. <laughs> but but uh, the mouse pain that they can can they tolerate just an uh, infinite amount of pain that they they wouldn't have any suffering in their hearts. Well, again, you'd have to speak to an arahant. They, uh, I mean, 
they're they're not stupid. So the um, uh, the great beings that I've known have uh, the few that uh, it's certainly they'll change their posture or get out of the the heat of the sun or. But they also they know how not to complain. One one interesting um, uh, comment that uh, um, Ajahn Pasno made after Ajahn Chah was paralyzed, um, you know, he, for the last ten years of his life he was completely paralyzed, and they they had to do um, give him exercise through sort of moving his arms and legs. He, he couldn't move himself at all, and they discovered that one of his knees was was really and when the doctors examined it and that one of his knees was quite badly damaged, and they said, oh, this must have been really painful for him because you know the the it's all torn up in there, and they said he never said a word. And he would sit for hours and hours and hours receiving people and, and sitting in meditation. And they said, well, no, it's really messed up in there. He must have been in great pain. This. He never said anything, never never talked about the, his bad knee. <laughs> so uh, that's, uh, um, it's, it's, I can't say what his own experience was, but the doctors were like quite uh, surprised that uh, you know, he he didn't mention anything about this knee being weak or painful. Or, no, never said a word. So, uh, and again, that was Ajahn Pasna was the abbot of what Nanachat at that time. So he was very much involved in Ajahn Chah's care and the people who were looking after him. So it was a, a, a comment that the doctors made that he he was it wasn't just sort of hearsay, but this, he was told that himself by the by the doctor. I, I understand. But then also, you know, you have other great beings like uh, Lumpur Plian. When uh, he came to uh, to stay at a Baigiri, you know, he was quite clear. Like, my knees are shot. You know, <laughs> I can't. Uh, if I'm going to be receiving people, I need to be on a chair because my knees are completely uh, completely sunk. I can't. I can't do it anymore. So, I just try to uh, think, think, think a little bit while you were talking. Uh, so the Buddha was when the Buddha was. Um, Attacked by the elephant, the drunk elephant. Nalagiri. Yeah, he he would not leave the road, but he would. Um, I I don't know exactly. He would do a certain sound. He sent. He he just projected metta. So Ananda tried to to get the Buddha because the the drunk elephant is coming down the charging down the street, and Ananda is trying to to get the Buddha out of the way or to stand in the way and the Buddha said, Ananda, you don't have to be afraid you know, because it's impossible for a Tathagata to, to uh, die on account of uh, an accidental injury so it can't, it can't happen and then he just projected loving kindness to Nalagiri and then the elephant got slower and slower and slower and then, and then um, kneeled down in the, in the dust I, I, I just thought, oh, there was a response. There was a skillful response to. Yeah, he knew there was a charging elephant coming at him, and Ananda is, you know, in typical Ananda way, <gasps> you know, you know, they're trying to protect the master, and then the Buddha says, "Look, you're in much more danger than I am. Get out of the way." <laughs> so Ananda stepped aside, and the Buddha just projected metta to, to Nalagiri, and then and then he lay down in the in the in the dust. And then, and also, they got his trunk and then sprayed dust over his own head, sort of, as a gesture of humility. And, and the other incident was when Angulimala was trying to catch up with the Buddha. And mm-hmm. The Buddha 
obviously used the psychic powers and uh, although he went slowly, he went, he was so fast that, that Angulimala couldn't catch up. Mm -hmm. So there is a response, but what would not be my response. He wasn't uh, afraid. He wasn't afraid. He knew he couldn't be injured, uh, or he couldn't he couldn't die on account of of uh, being attacked. As uh, you, you, a, a Buddha can't be killed, according to the Buddhist mythology. They can be injured. So, like when Devadatta pushed a rock off a cliff, and then uh, part of the rock injured the Buddha. Um, but uh, <clears throat> uh, yeah, a Buddha. A, a, According to Buddhist mythology, a Buddha can't be killed. He, he chooses the time of his passing away. So they say. Okay, carry on. So let's read that last sentence again. Moreover, aversion to pain can, according to the Buddha's penetrating analysis, fuel the tendency to seek sensual gratification, since, from the unawakened point of view, the enjoyment of sensual pleasures appears to be the only escape from pain. So that puts it very succinctly, but probably many of us, maybe most of us, have spent huge amounts of time getting away from painful feelings, not just physical pain, but the I say frustrated or irritated, frightened, anxious, mental feelings like go to the go to the fridge, <laughs> go to the library, go to call a friend, something, anything will do. You know, sometimes in in meditation you can see the the mind sort of hunting for something. Just anything will do. Just fight something, eat something, chase something, run away from something, have an opinion about something, anything. <laughs> Just love someone, hate someone. You know. Come up with an unrequited romance or an unrequited venge vengeance, just something. And you can see the mind kind of just hunting for a thing to engage with, just to give it uh, an object to, to chew on. So he puts it very succinctly there. So this creates a vicious circle in which, with each experience of feeling, pleasant or unpleasant, the bondage to feeling increases. And in another very telling image, the Buddha says, like a dog tied to a post, whether it uh, goes around clockwise or anti-clockwise, uh, the dog still remains tied to the post. So whether you're attached to pleasant feeling or painful feeling, you're still attached to, to feeling, you know, regardless of, of whether it's love or hate. The, the, the mind is still attached, like a dog tied to a post is going around in one direction or another, it's still tied. The way out of this vicious circle lies in mindful and sober observation of unpleasant feelings. Such non-reactive awareness of pain is a simple but effective method for skillfully handling a painful experience. I was saying the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. It's the trade name for this. Simply observing physical pain for what it is prevents it from producing mental repercussions. Any mental reaction of fear or resistance to pain would only increase the degree of unpleasantness of the painful experience. An accomplished meditator might be able to experience solely the physical aspect of an unpleasant feeling without allowing mental reactions to arise. Thus, meditator's skill and insight 
have an intriguing potential for preventing physical sickness from affecting the mind. And uh, he quotes there this um, uh, sutta, this discourse of the Buddha to uh, Nakula Pita, uh, which is, let's see, in uh, Sangyutta Nikaya, section 22, uh, sutta number one. He says, uh, you should train like this. My body may be sick, yet my mind will not be afflicted. The dis discourse explains that the point is to avoid identification with any of the five aggregates and thereby with the pain. This suggests a sense of dissociation from the experience of pain, as if the affected part of the body did not belong to one. Although one continues to be aware of the pain as an objective phenomenon, this act of dissociation or de-identification diminishes or even removes the affective impact of the pain on the mind. So I thought, uh, yeah, this is a very interesting little sutta. The uh, this elderly couple, Nakula Pitta and Nakula Mata, they have a, a, a somewhat unique role in the um, scriptures. They were apparently the Buddha's parents in at least 500 different lifetimes. You know, 500 is a, a sort of Buddhist traditional way of saying a lot. So these two, uh, this old couple, uh, Nakula Pitta and Nakula Mata, they had a, a, a close relationship to the Buddha, uh, seemingly closer than King Suddhodana. Um, and so this is one occasion where Nakulapitta comes to the Buddha. Says, one occasion, the Blessed One was living among the Bhaghas at Crocodile Haunt in the Besakala Grove of the Deer Park. Then the householder Nakulapitta went to the Blessed One, and on arrival, having bowed down to him, sat to one side. As he was sitting there, he said to the Blessed One, Venerable Sir, I am a feeble old man. Aged, advanced in years, having come to the last stage of life. I am afflicted in body and ailing with every moment. And it is only rarely that I get to see the Blessed One and the monks who nourish the heart. May the Blessed One teach me, may the Blessed One instruct me for my long-term benefit and happiness. So it is, householder, so it is. The body is afflicted, weak and encumbered. For who, looking after this body, would claim even a moment of true health except through sheer foolishness? That's an interesting comment. The Buddha says, anyone who claims to be completely healthful, healthy is an idiot. Probably most doctors would agree. <laughs> you're a fool if you think you're completely healthy. There's always something going wrong, even if you don't know about it. Uh, who, looking after this body, would claim even a moment of true health except through sheer foolishness. So, you should train yourself. Even though I may be afflicted in body, my mind will be unafflicted. That is how you should train yourself. So then, uh, uh, Nakula Pita, um, delighting and approving of the Blessed One's words, rose from his seat, bowed to the Blessed One, and then uh, he went to see Venerable Sariputta. So the Buddha didn't say very much to him. But so Nakula Pita went off to see uh, Venerable Sariputta, and then Sariputta says, Your faculties are serene, householder. Your complexion is bright and pure. Have you had the opportunity today of listening to a Dhamma talk in the presence of the Blessed One? And then he says, Well, yes, I have. That's why I'm looking so bright and, and cheerful. I have been anointed by the Blessed One with the deathless ambrosia of a Dhamma talk. And then Sariputta says, So how, how was that? And then he just repeats this extremely short phrase, 
this little uh, sentence that the Buddha said to him. And then Sariputta says, well, why didn't you ask him some more? You know, he didn't say much to you. Didn't you, didn't you ask him to explain how to be unafflicted in mind? And then Nakulipitta said, well, actually, um, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't ask him how to be unafflicted in mind. So then Venerable Sariputta said, so, how is one afflicted in body and, uh, and afflicted in mind? So, how is it that both with the body and the mind, how they are, they're both afflicted? So Sariputta says, There is the case where an uninstructed, run-of-the-mill person, who has no regard for noble ones, is not well-versed or disciplined in their Dhamma, who has no regard for people of integrity, is not well-versed or disciplined in their Dhamma. They assume that form, the body, to be the self, or that the self possesses the body, or the body is uh, in the self, or the self is in the body. They are seized with the idea that I am the body, the body is mine. As they are seized with these ideas, their body changes and alters, and they fall into sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress and despair over its change and alteration. So that's how you get afflicted in mind as well as afflicted in body, that uh, there is the identification, I am the body, the body is mine, uh, the self is in the body or the body is in the self, uh, That all those different kinds of identification will lead to um, that sense of dukkha with uh, any change in the body. And then so too with feelings, perceptions, mental formations and consciousness. And then he says, this householder is how one is afflicted in body and afflicted in mind. And how is one afflicted in body but unafflicted in mind? So, what's the cure? There is the case where a well-instructed disciple of the noble ones, who has regard for noble ones, is well-versed and disciplined in their Dhamma, has regard for people of integrity, is well-versed and disciplined in their Dhamma, they do not assume the body to be the self, or the self as possessing uh, the, the body, or as body as being as a body as being in the self or the self in the body. They are not seized with the idea that I am the body or the body is mine. As they are not seized with these ideas, when their body changes and alters, they do not fall into sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress or despair over its change and alteration. The same is true with uh, feelings to be self, perceptions, formations and consciousness. So uh, as uh, they do not think that um, any of those, any of the five khandas, is me or mine. They are not seized with these ideas, and so as their consciousness, feeling, perception, and so on, as they change and alter, they do not fall into sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, or despair over their change and alteration. This householder is how one is afflicted in body, but unafflicted in mind. That is what the Venerable Sariputta said and gratified the householder Nakulapita, delighted in Venerable Sariputta's words. So that's uh, Sutta number one in the uh, twi uh, section 22 of the Connected Discourses. The connected, Sangyuta. Sangyuta, section 22, Sutta number one. So that uh, is a very um, simple thing to recollect. How to be afflicted in body unavoidable, afflicted in mind, avoidable. <laughs> to be, uh, uh, my, even though my body might be sick, I don't have to be afflicted in, in mind. And that's a, there's an option.
that uh, we can we can choose. Yes, James. It's not really late, but it's just what confuses me is what is it that's aware that consciousness is not self? Is, is the, what does it mean when it says consciousness exactly? Well, the the quality of of vidya or knowing awareness. So vinyana literally means discriminative conscious, vi separate or partial, jnana knowing. So um, the words vidya means awareness or jnana itself, knowledge. So those are the that referring to that uh, transcendent quality of, of awareness. So they're not separative or discriminative consciousness. That's like you can say vinyana is like the the the, the pixels in a in a the kind of the individual pixels in a photograph, and uh, vidya uh, is uh, awareness is what knows the pixels. That makes sense. So like it's uh, vinyana is like the finest grain of of uh, dividing things into this and that. Would that be the thoughts then? Well, even even finer grain than thoughts, the little bits that thoughts are made up of. Then what knows the thought? The, uh, and that discriminates between the beginning of a thought, the end of a thought, that that, that quality of of knowing that is vijja itself. Is that discussed in the scriptures as something separate from the five candles? Well, that yeah, that's that um, in many uh, many ways. There's a, the most clear place. Um, it's called the uh, one of the most clear places it's spoken about is like the. Uh, is called the the eye of wisdom, panya chaku. What is it that what is it that knows a knowable object? And then the answer is the panya chaku, the eye of wisdom. That's in the either the lesser or the greatest uh, se- uh, session of questions and answers in the Majjhima Nikaya. I think it's the Chula Vedala Sutta. That which knows a cognizable object is the panya chaku, the eye of wisdom. Okay. So the discourses relate to this ability of preventing physical pain from affecting mental composure to the practice of satipatthana in, uh, in particular. This way, a wise observation of pain through satipatthana can transform experiences of pain into occasions for deep insight. And so that's, uh, as I've been saying, that's like a, very much the, the uh, most accessible and, and um, much used uh, means of of developing insight and uh, and liberation through the wise uh, understanding and the uh, changing the attitude towards pain. So then the, the last section of this chapter is called neutral feeling. While pleasant and unpleasant feelings can activate the respective latent tendencies to lust and irritation, neutral feelings can stimulate the latent tendency to ignorance. Avicca or moha, delusion. Ignorance in regard to neutral feelings is to be unaware of the arising and disappearance of neutral feelings, or not to understand the advantage, disadvantage, and escape in relation to neutral feelings. So as I was talking about the asada, the gratification, the adinava, the liability, and then the nisarana, the, the, the escape. Because neutral feelings don't get our attention. Um, uh, Greed and hatred, lust and irritation, our whole perceptual system 
is uh, geared to notice. If it's attractive, I want. If it's, if it's uh, unattractive, if it's irritating, I want to get rid of. But the, the, uh, if something is bland or the, the space between people, like the space between Venerable Ruchiro and Anagarika Volta is not as interesting as Anagarika Volta or Tan Ruchiro. It's really boring. Humans are much more interesting. The, the attention goes to the object rather than the space between. So uh, that's why the, uh, in relationship to neutral feeling, you don't notice the effects that it's, that it's having because the, the attention doesn't go to it so easily. So in many respects, moha, delusion, and neutral feeling is far more um, challenging to practice with than, than uh, desire and uh, lust and, and irritation. As the commentaries point out, awareness of neutral feelings is not an easy task and should best be approached by way of inference, by noting the absence of both pleasant and unpleasant feelings. Of further interest in a discussion of neutral feeling is the Abhidharmic analysis of feeling tones arising at the five physical sense doors. The Abhidhamma holds that the only, sen only the sense of touch is accompanied by pain or pleasure, while feelings arising at the other four sense doors are invariably neutral. Um, yeah, I would kind of contest that because you know some smells are particularly off-putting. Like the smell of a rotting human body is uh, not uh, is not pleasant. <laughs> but uh, there are <coughs> tastes that are extremely uh, off-putting and, and uh, revolting. So that. Uh, I think the Abhidharma has got a, a point to make, but I, I, I don't really agree with, with what it's saying. That uh, It might not be painful as in terms of sharpness of physical pain, but the things that you smell or taste um, and, uh, and uh, hear or see can be extremely uh, painful and, and off-putting. Can, can, can it be that uh, um, it's that many... Pleasant feelings like with the side is actually coming from the mental. Oh, I like that. That's pretty cool. Da, da, da. So then, then the mental concepts come in. So it's not really often the, the like the sunset. The sunset in itself for the eye, it's not pleasant. Yeah, I, I think. Uh, the mind, it's pleasant. Yeah, but it also, I would say it's operating before any kind of. Of, of thinking and, and conditioning like sexual desire you know the the, the most vague um, representation of, of sort of sexually attractive forms just like a, a couple of lines can make the attention latch on to uh, uh, or the um, uh, with uh, say a smell of like a, a burning uh, like a, a corpse being burnt uh, some taste you know you want as soon as it touches your tongue you want to vomit you know, it's like some of many of those sort of reactions are uh, are like pre well pre thought, and so I think it's it's a kind of abhidharma tidying everything up to fit their convenient pattern. And this is what's happening there, but um, so it just doesn't in terms of common experience, it doesn't really you can't really say it's 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 uh, free of pleasure and pain just because it's not the body. But anyway, I'll read it out as it says. 
This Abhidharmic presentation offers an intriguing perspective on contemplation of feeling, since it invites an inquiry into the degree to which an experience of delight or displeasure in regard to sight, sm sound, smell or taste is simply the outcome of one's own mental evaluation. evaluation. So, yeah, it invites that, but I would say I disagree with the Abhidharma, because it's <laughs> like... It, it's just a uh, common sense, you know, that, that, that some things that you, as you, you, you taste or you smell, you see, have uh, instantaneous and non-conceptual uh, uh, effects that are, are there, uh, even in a, a, a small, uh, small child, or you know, the, the mind in a very, um, you know, irrespective of your nationality or your your age or your you know social condition of any kind. In addition to this inquiry, a central feature to be contemplated in regard to neutral feelings is their impermanent nature. This is of particular importance because, in actual experience, neutral feeling appears easily to be the most stable of the three types of feeling. Thus, to counteract the tendency to regard it as permanent, its impermanent nature needs to be observed. Contemplated in this way, neutral feeling will lead to the arising of wisdom, thereby counteracting the latent tendency to ignorance. Uh, I thought I'd just read um, a passage from one of Lumpur Sumato's talks, uh, because yeah, uh, neutral feeling is far more demanding, like Anapanasati, mindfulness of breathing is a neutral feeling, it's not pleasant or painful, so you've got to work to pay attention, because it, it doesn't grab your attention on its own, so that you're... you're um, so it takes an effort to to pay attention, but therefore your kind of concentration muscles are developed because of uh, it doesn't grab your attention uh, on its own. So this is from the uh, the little book called Path Mindfulness: The Path to the Deathless, and this chapter is called Mindfulness of the Ordinary. Now, for the next hour, we'll do the walking practice using the motion of walking as the object of concentration, bringing your attention to the movement of your feet and the pressure of the feet touching the ground. You can use the mantra Bhutto for that also, Bud for the right, Do for the left, using the span of the walking meditation path. See if you can be fully with, fully alert to the sensation of walking from the beginning of the path to the end. Use an ordinary pace, then you can slow it down or speed it up accordingly. Develop a normal pace because our meditation moves around the ordinary things rather than the special. We use the ordinary breath, not a special breathing practice. The sitting posture rather than standing on our heads. Normal walking rather than running or jogging or walking methodically slowly. Just a relaxed pace. We're practicing around what's most ordinary because we take it for granted. But now we're bringing our attention to all the things we've taken for granted and never noticed, such as our own minds and bodies. Even doctors trained in physiology and anatomy are not really with their bodies. They sleep with their bodies, they're born with their bodies, they grow old, have to live with them, feed them, exercise them, and yet they'll tell you about a liver as if it was on a chart. It's easier to look at a liver on a chart than to be aware of your own liver, isn't it? 
So we look at the world as if someone we are, uh, if somehow we aren't a part of it, and what's most ordinary, what's most common, we miss, because we're looking at what is extraordinary. Television is extraordinary. This was, talk was given before computers existed, so, and certainly before iPhones and uh, iPads and such like. Television is extraordinary. They can put all kinds of fantastic, adventurous, romantic things on the television. It's a miraculous thing, so it's easy to concentrate on. You can get mesmerized by the telly. Also, when the body becomes extraordinary, say it becomes very ill or very painful, or it feels ecstatic, or wonderful feelings go through it. We notice that. But just the pressure of the right foot on the ground, just the movement of the breath, just the feeling of your body sitting on the seat when there's not any kind of extreme sensation, those are the things we're awakened to now. We're bringing our attention to the way things are for an ordinary life. When life becomes extreme or extraordinary, then we find we can cope with it quite well. Pacifists and conscientious objectors are often asked this famous question. You don't believe in violence, so what would you do if a maniac was attacking your mother? That's something that I think most of us have never had to worry about very much. It's not the kind of ordinary daily occurrence in one's life. But if such an extreme situation did arise, I'm sure we would do something that would be appropriate. Even the nuttiest person can be mindful in extreme situations. But in ordinary life, when there isn't anything extreme going on, when we're just sitting here, we can be completely nutty, can't we? It says in the Patimokha discipline, the monks' rules, that we monks shouldn't hit anyone. So then I sit here worrying about what I would do if a maniac attacks my mother. I've created a great moral problem in my ordinary situation, and I'm sitting here and my mother isn't even here. In all these years, there hasn't been the slightest threat to my mother's life from maniacs. From California drivers, yes. But great moral questions we can answer easily in accordance with time and place, if now we're mindful of this time and this place. So we're bringing attention to the ordinariness of our human condition, the breathing of the body, the walking from one end of the Jongrom path to the other, and to the feelings of pleasure and pain. As we go on in this retreat, we examine absolutely everything, watch and know everything as it is. This is our practice of vipassana, to know things as they are, not according to some theory or some assumption we make about them. The Salayatana Vibhanga Sutta, which is Sutta number 137 in the Majjhima Nikaya, the, the uh, exposition of the sixfold senses, this points out the difference between neutral feelings associated with ignorance and those associated with wisdom is related to whether such feelings transcend their object. In the, de in the deluded case, neutral feeling is predominantly the result of the bland features of the object, where the lack of effect on the observer results in the absence of pleasant or unpleasant feeling. So something's boring, so we don't pay attention to it, so it's a neutral feeling in terms of, of the object. So it's a neutral feeling, but it doesn't lead to liberation. Conversely, 
neutral feeling related to the presence of wisdom it transcends the object since it results from detachment and equanimity not from the pleasant and unpleasant features of the object so something could be very shocking or very uh, 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 ugly or very exciting or very attractive but if there's wisdom then the mind can learn to not be uh, reactive about that so there can be a, 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 a neutral or uh, equanimous feeling in relationship to an object whether it's uh, uh, attractive or, uh, or unattractive, pleasant or painful so that's like neutral feeling arising from wisdom rather than neutral feeling arising from bland like the space between uh, two people according to the same discourse the establishment of such equanimity is the result of a progressive refinement of feelings during which at first the three types of feelings related to a life of renunciation are used to go beyond their more worldly and sensual counterparts in the next stage mental joy related to renunciation is used to confront and go beyond the difficulties related to renunciation this process of refinement then leads up to equanimous feelings transcending even nonsensual feelings of mental joy equanimity and detachment as a culmination of practice also occur in the satipatthana refrain of, con of for contemplation of feelings which instructs the meditator to contemplate all kinds of feeling quote free from dependencies and without clinging and the actual quote is he, he abides independent not clinging to anything in the world that is how in regard to feelings he abides contemplating feelings so that that sutta this the um this exposition on the sixfold sense space um he describes it very briefly there but it's a, it's a little bit confusing i think in the way he puts it but it it talks about uh it says uh, six kinds of of uh, joy based on renunciation six kinds of grief based on renunciation six kinds of joy based on the household life six kinds of grief based on the household life and so the, it's a very sort of intricate and uh thorough matrix of of different feelings that the buddha describes but um he uh, if you're interested it's sutta 137 in the, the majima but it, essentially as he describes there, it talks about um the uh, the development of equanimity upeka uh, and first of all equanimity based on on diversity so that if you like uh, my my synopsis of it because it's a, the suit is a little bit intricate but it's like equanimity based on diversity is um there's a lot of stuff going on um but uh, even though there's a lot of stuff going on you're calm in the middle of a lot of stuff so that's equanimity based on adversity there's a lot of uh, and, and diversity there's a lot of things going on but uh, there's a uh, a sense of stillness and stability in the midst of all that stuff so then equanimity based on then that that kind of equanimity leads to equanimity based on unity and so that <clears throat> that uh, unity is well all that stuff is actually just anicca dukkha anatta it's all just uh, things arising and passing away it's all just that uh, that one thing um it's it's all just uh, the perceptions arising and passing it's all anicca dukkha anatta so it's a more refined level of equanimity and then the third the final level of equanimity is so that you can say the first level based on diversity is there's a lot of stuff but there's uh, i'm being still in the middle of it and then the second one is well there's only uh, there's uh, the 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 that's just that stuff it's all anicca dukkha anatta 
uh, and so then there's uh, there's a sense of stillness of that the uh, the the knowing of all that stuff uh, and that's a, 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 an extra more refined level of equanimity and then the third and final level of equanimity is there is no stuff there's just this so that's called non-identification or atamayata which is an unusual word in the Buddhist um, scriptures but there's a, a chapter in um, the book The Island and there's a little off print that we have just on that um, atamayata literally means not made of that so you only get it mentioned a few times in the suttas but it, that sutta 137 is uh, of the Majima is one place and it's a it's like the the mind has not even a, a, a knower and a known but it's letting go of the uh, of this whole subject object uh, separation and so uh, literally means not made of that and so that uh, is like a, an equanimity based on letting go of self and other letting go of subject and object so it's like the most refined level of stability so uh, Ajahn Buddha Dasa said this is the ultimate Buddhist concept uh, atamayata uh, and, uh, even though it's not very often mentioned in the suttas he said that's really representing the the most refined quality of, of wisdom is atamayata where the, the mind doesn't create any kind of self and other but there's just a in a way the the mind aware of its own nature <coughs> so that's enough for today i think well it's it's an off print from the island it's called atamayata you can take you can shut up pass it back any you could any if you can move there's only about 500 copies of that in the world so it's a, it's a bit of a rare one but, um, it's an off print of the chapter from the island it's almost exactly the same as the in the book hmm? you can uh, you can hang on to it if you like for a few days um, so tomorrow is the moon day it's the new moon so there won't be a reading for tomorrow and the next day so the next one will be Wednesday any questions or yes James Well, it's it's there. Um, it's in terms of say, like the the hearts were liberated through not clinging. The, you know, the, that's a standard way of describing uh, somebody being out, being uh, liberated. That the it's like Maybe that. It's a, is it the translation consciousness that's making me confused? I, I always think that is consciousness. That no, well, the consciousness usually uh, is complicated a little bit by the way that Lumpur Sumedha uses the word consciousness. Because usually the word vinyana means discriminative consciousness, and it's uh, and so it's a uh, it's part of the five khandas. But uh, Lumpur Sumedha often uses the English word consciousness to refer to that quality of awareness which is not part of the five khandas, which is that which knows the five khandas, 
And so there, there's there's a couple of there's only a couple of places in the suttas where the word vinyana is used like that. So Lumpur Sumedha was very um, he would quote those passages, but he he tended to use the word consciousness for that kind of liberated awareness. And so that it's a bit confusing because um, it's like uh, if something is part of the five khandas, it can't be liberated from them. So that that's what is liberated is is transcendent of the five khandas. So that you can say the chitta uh, or the the knowing aspect of the chitta is what is is liberated. And uh, <clears throat> so it's if you read the introduction to Lumpur Sumedho's book. Um, intuitive awareness. I, I I did the introduction. I can explain uh, several pages of Lumpur's use of the word consciousness, <laughs> for, because he's very sort of flexible in how he how he employs it. And so, I mean, every Dhamma teacher is like tends to be like that. They have their own little kind of vernacular. But it, it's uh, so the words like vicha or jnana or lokutarapanya, supramundane wisdom. They all are, are qualities you can say. Uh, uh, Representing that uh, awareness, which is outside of the five khandas, and that was the the main insight that Ajahn Chah had from meeting Ajahn Man. Was uh, he only stayed with Ajahn Man for about three days, and then it was the on the the, the third day when Ajahn, Ajahn Man gave a a talk. He gave a talk each evening, and uh, Ajahn Chah um, uh, heard him speaking about this, saying that that. Um, so that the the mind, you know, the the mind and mind objects are intrinsically separate. The the awareness and objects are intrinsically separate. That's why liberation is is possible. If they were not intrinsically separate, then liberation would be impossible. So that that's why. <clears throat> and then he used this analogy of oil and water that you you don't in in essence you don't have to separate the the awareness out from objects if you just. If you have oil and water in a bottle and you shake it up, if it's shaken up all the time and it seems to be one liquid, if you just put it down and they separate on their own. So, in a sense, it's just like mindfulness of the ordinary. If you just put things down and watch this moment, then even in a, uh, um, an exchange where you're, uh, you're an ordinary everyday experience, you're talking with someone, you can see and hear and smell and taste and touch, it's still the case that, that the awareness and the objects are, are not intrinsically melded together or wedded to each other. Uh, but it, it takes a lot of skill to notice that. But then that which knows the objects is not, is not uh, say, say, identified with the objects. And that, so then that's why that, that the more clearly that is known then the more complete the liberation is. The degree to which that the bottle is shaken up, and the the uh, awareness and the objects seem to be unified. Is the degree to which the mind is attached, and and will and appears to be being born over and over again. Okay. Easy to talk about, not easy to do. <laughs> <laughs>